welcome to episode 350 of the Microsoft Cloud IT Pro Podcast, recorded live on August 25th, 2023. This is a show about Microsoft 365 and Azure from the perspective of IT pros and end users, where we discuss a topic or recent news and how it relates to you. Teams channels, it's one of Ben's recent frustrations with some of the feature ambiguity between the various types of channels available. Ben and Scott also talk about the new open book policy or Microsoft Learn policy for taking Microsoft exams. Finally, they wrap up with a new feature release near and dear to Scott's heart, giving you a simplified experience for creating and managing CDN endpoints for Azure Storage using Azure Front Door. We need to have a segment, Scott. So on our podcast, we should start a Ben's weekly rant. Stop. It's your show. Like, you can do whatever you want. Like, I join to provide color commentary, so. Or to get me all riled up. You want a segment? Like, I'll put some sound effects in there or something, and we'll be good. Of Ben's weekly rant? Do you know what Ben's weekly rant is today? I don't know why I didn't realize this before. Ben's weekly rant today. I feel like I should have known about this, or I would have encountered this before. My weekly rant today has to do with an overview of Teams and channels in Microsoft Teams. And to be fair, I actually have lots of rants about Teams and channels in Microsoft Teams (laughs) and the way this has been implemented. But I had an interesting one that I hit today. And I honestly don't know why I haven't hit this one before or why I didn't realize this before. Microsoft is all about shared channels for like, private channels, because you can do your own security on it. It creates its own SharePoint site, blah, 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 blah. And did you like all the blah, 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 blahs? And loved it. I work with some contractors. Like I have a few contractors, different companies I partner with, all of that. And we have started using shared channels because in that case, a shared channel is nice. We set up all the AD stuff. And I share my channel with them so that they don't have to do all the tenant jumping stuff in order to get to content for a client that we might be working on together. Well, today I had such a, right. Makes sense. Very reasonable. That's what I thought. So today I had such a channel and all of a sudden I had a file and I'm like, sweet, we're done with this. Now I can share it to a client. It doesn't work. Because if you go look at the channel features comparison, shared channels work great for external participant, B2B direct connect, all of that. But guess what cannot be added to a shared channel? A guest user. (laughs) You like want to have your cake and eat it too. So, right. But if my client is not set up for B2B direct connect and I don't want to add with him and I want to share a file with him that we've been working on in Teams, I can't do it anymore. Now I have to go put it somewhere else or go back to, let me email you this file or something else. And I just get irritated by that today because I wanted to have shared channels for when I work with contractors where it's all hunky-dory, but I also wanted to be able to add a guest to it so that I could share a file with a guest, which seemed very logical to me. And they have this overview of this channel feature comparison table. And I think it just even reiterated to me how, I would say, discombobulated the whole channel infrastructure and setup really is when it comes to teams. And I feel like you should not have to think this much or put this much planning into what type of channel do I want? Like, 
I should have apps is another one. This is my other pet peeve. Like, I can't add apps. I can't add Planner. If I want to do task management in a private channel or a shared channel and I want to use Planner, I don't use Planner for this reason. But if I did, I should be able to add it. Like, the differentiation between standard, private, and shared should absolutely be a security construct, not a, we have a list of 15 things, and depending on what you want to do, before you go create a channel, you should go through this list of 15 things and figure out exactly what you want to do. And if for some reason what you want to do doesn't work out, tough luck. (laughs) Well, I mean, arguably, sharing with an external guest is a security thing. Yes. Okay, so... It, yes, it's a security thing, but it's also not like shared channels should implement B2B stuff, but I don't feel like it should take away other stuff. So I guess meh. it's hard. It's, yeah. it's, it's a balance thing. Like, And there's weird stuff too. The, the one I've run into was shared channels. And I guess I always just thought it was like a gap and I didn't know why I didn't know it was documented was the analytics thing. Like if you ever play around with like team analytics, like I have a thing where we have a internal team where, you know, we let like our field and technical communities come in. And one of the KPIs we have is like, Hey, how much growth over time can we drive in this team? Like how many posts can we drive? What are the types of engagement we get? How many members do we add month over month and interactions and things like that? And like, it's a nightmare. To, to get the data and put it together. And I have to do a bunch of it manually and it's painful and it, and it hurts. T- teams are just weird in, in general. I ran into another interesting one <laughs> in SharePoint. So I, I was working on a project with someone and they had created some files, like think like Word documents, PowerPoints, things like that over in their OneDrive totally valid thing, right? Like you create it in your OneDrive, like that's quite often like where documents start for me. And then over time, I take them and I either physically move them or I do the save as a copy thing and I save it into another site and then I just delete the one in my OneDrive so I don't have two copies of it and multiple things running around. So I'm working on this project with this person and I say, hey, can you come and, you know, I see you have these files in your OneDrive, like they're pretty much canonical at this point, like we've iterated on them, they're done. Can you move them over to the team site so they're ready to go? Like I have a team site with a channel and that channel has you know a folder inside the SharePoint site, things like that. So just go to this place in SharePoint and just do like bring the thing over there. And the way that they thought to do that was to you know do the thing where you could just add a new link in the SharePoint site and it creates a .url file. And they just made that point to the stuff in their OneDrive. And I was like, I can see how functionally you thought that was the same thing, but they're very different things. <laughs> I'd never seen somebody use URLs in a SharePoint site that way. And it was just, it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, users are going to do weird things that you just can't account for. Yeah, they really do. I don't know, and I think with all of this, it's hard. Like, I also feel for Microsoft in that respect, right? They created teams, they created channels. Arguably, they probably had no idea they were going to do shared channels and private channels when they first stood up Teams. And then they had to try to shoehorn these in. But I think that's where a lot of the frustration comes up, is that as you add on these features, and we've talked about it before, where that initial dependency on groups for security, for planner, even when it used to be there for Power BI workspaces, kind of backed Microsoft into a corner with some of this stuff. And it really is, how do you get around some of the 
it's technical debt. How do you get around some of that technical debt from when you first rolled it out to be able to implement these in a way that to be able to implement these in a way that they work and work for everybody? And I've seen like the planner one is one I've seen a lot. And Microsoft said like a year, year and a half ago, yeah, we're aware of it. We're working on it. We want to get planner to everything. But a year, year and a half is a long time. Personally, I've gone out and found workarounds. Like I said, I don't use Planner. I use Jira because Jira gives me a lot more flexibility to be able to actually pin tasks to any type of channel, no matter which one it is, because I got tired of waiting for Microsoft to do it. Continues to be a tough space to work in. You're moving at the speed of the cloud. (sighs) Yeah, so... There's my rant, but I would also say for those of you that are looking at all these channels, like go look at this channel feature comparison before you stand them up. And unfortunately, again, to the dismay of end users don't even know to look at this, right? Like what happens if you have an end user go spin up a certain type of channel and put a bunch of content in it and build out a SharePoint site and six months down the road they need to do something that you can't do in that specific type of channel. You can't convert it. Like at that point in time, you're doing a channel-to-channel migration. I don't even have any good advice. Like, do you go tell people to look at this overview before they spin up channels? I mean, there's some stuff as you as an admin that you can do with sensitivity labels or setting some standardization, turning certain channels off. But it's kind of a tough spot for end users to be in, to have to know some of these requirements to pick the right channel if you let users do that in your environment. Yeah, end users are never going to come over to this documentation. Never. Like, I'm going to make the argument it doesn't happen. If it's not on support.microsoft.com, they never find it. And you know the SEO just isn't there for things like this versus like support.microsoft. And even then, like you're still asking the user to take that extra step. I know I'm not going to do it. No. Well, and again, it's not something I spent a ton of time looking at and thinking about until I hit this one. So I don't know. But hey, now you know for next time. I do. And speaking of documentation, Scott, do you know who can start going to this documentation now in learn.microsoft.com? There is a new subgroup, a new group of people that can start visiting said documentation. <laughs> I see what you did there. That, do, do you like that? That was actually one of your... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would have been a good transition if I hadn't called out that I saw what you did there. So I, I ruined it for you, but it was one of your better it's ones. It's okay. Yeah. So we've talked a bunch about certifications on the show in the past. And I don't know about you, like they're near and dear to my heart, right? Like I used to write books for these things. I certainly trained a bunch of people on them. Like it was my bread and butter for a little bit while, a little while, and it paid the bills. But the role based certifications for Microsoft exams, you know, those things where you go to a Pearson View site or, you know, you do them at home and you sit there with your camera on and you got the moderator and they're like, show me what your desk looks like. And you don't have any like paper clips or post it notes. It's on your desk, do you? And then you know your kid walks in behind you and you're disqualified from your test. Those exams are now moving to a model where you will have access to learn.microsoft.com. So effectively, the docs for the services that you're dealing with, like back to the example that 
we just had here, where you were looking at a comparison of features in Teams, like that comparison was sitting over in learn.microsoft.com. So that stuff is now going to be available for test takers directly through the testing interface. So, you know, if you've ever sat down for a Microsoft exam, you know, like your moderator comes over, they spin you up into this environment and it's it's locked down and like all you're in is the exam environment. Now they'll have links in there where you can optionally open kind of a split view with a browser tab and go over to learn and search through learn and potentially get to the information that you need to get to, which I think is good uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. One is Microsoft exams are notorious for testing you on the esoteric things that, frankly, you don't do day to day. Like, oh, I'm going to show you a multiple choice answer, and each one of those answers has a different set of parameters that all look very much the same on a PowerShell commandlet. You're like, I don't know, I haven't touched that PowerShell commandlet in two months. And even if I had touched it, I was going to do Git help or something else on it to work my way through it and get it to where it needs to be. So now you can potentially leverage the docs uh, to go ahead and look that up. So I think that's all good. I think there's still limitations here. So one thing that I think I would struggle with personally is I don't like Microsoft Search. Like I don't think Bing Search is a great product, and it doesn't return results with the fidelity that I want that I'm used to in other search engines like Google. Like I'm a I'm a Google user, and I'm yep. used to. <laughs> query syntax in Google and the way it returns things for me. So you're not allowed to go to Google and search and use a random blog. You're stuck to learn.microsoft.com and kind of the the built-in Bing search that comes along with that. The other thing that I think is going to potentially be painful and trip people up is the certifications don't get updated as often as the documentation does. (laughs) So there is a very real possibility that, again, I'll take that example of you're sitting on a multiple choice question and you've got four answers and they all have different PowerShell parameters, that actually two of those answers could be right, but it turns out there's only one answer that's right for the test because maybe the parameters on that commandlet changed over time. And the ones that are surfaced in the doc are what's right today, but the real answer is what was right six months ago when this test was written thing. I think that's going to be a struggle for folks as well. I'm a big fan of this because I've had the same thing. To your point, I like, and I, I think this is going to hit a lot more, at least for me when it comes to like PowerShell scripts or CLIs or like even some of the intricacies of maybe how things are named because that is what I do tend to rely a lot on the docs for. I am also a very much a tab-complete type person. I remember <laughs> 100%. just enough so that tab-complete works, but I don't know the whole commandlet name. And to come into a test and remember it, so I see a lot of advantages to it here. But I also agree, or I also think that you're not going to be able to rely on this to just go in and pass the exam without knowing your stuff for a couple reasons. One... There is still absolutely the exact same amount of time. So if you were running into time limits before when you took these, and now you're going to go try to look up all this stuff and learn to validate your answers, you're going to run out of time. And I had a professor that did this to us even in college. He would say, okay, this test, open book everything. I don't care what you take in. You can take in all the textbooks, all your notes. You can take in anything you want to. 
But if you don't know it, you're not going to have enough time to pass it. And I wonder if even as some of these tests get updated, if Microsoft will start taking some of those approaches with these too, where sometimes OpenBook is nice or Open Learn in this case, because you can go look it up. But are they going to start writing questions where it's not quite so black and white? And again, I still think you're going to have to know your stuff. There's also going to be a temptation to go in, I think, and validate that you're answering it properly, which could cause you to run out of time if you're in there and you're like, oh, I don't really know, let me go look this up. And then like 20 minutes later, you find the answer. That kills a lot of time in a test. So I still say you're going to have to know your stuff, but I like that it's available because that's how a lot of people work today. Most people don't have PowerShell command let's memorize this chart of team functionality or some of the SKUs on what's included and what licensing. I would venture to guess 95 percent of the people that do that on a day-to-day basis don't memorize it. They just know where it is. But you're also going to have to get used to being able to just search using learn and not search using your favorite search engine of choice. Or relying on like the community stuff. Like it's only going to be the docs. It's not going to be some of the forums and tech community stuff that's under learn either. Because there are some like blog posts and stuff that also all fall under that. URL. So it's not YouTube videos. It's also not GitHub repos, which is interesting, depending on the examination that you're taking. So, one place I would say, like having access to GitHub could be helpful, would be some of the developer exams, because lots of the samples for development are actually over on GitHub, like the high fidelity samples that are going to maybe get you to that answer sometimes. So, TLDR is, you do have access to this, but just because you have access to this, I don't, having not sat and taken one in the new format yet, because like this was just released, I don't think this makes things any easier. I think it potentially takes away some of the jitters and anxiety that might come with test taking, but it doesn't take away from the need to still understand the material, the core concepts. Like you're still going to have to study and do all of those things. Because even having access to learn means you still need to go know where in learn to look. Like, am I looking up a conceptual thing? Am I looking up a how to thing? Is it more a referential thing? and you're going to need to know that. Yeah. Am I looking at the service docs? Do I need to go look at the CAF or the WAF or some other weird place? Like All, all that stuff kind of comes into play. You're also not going to have access to other learn properties like Microsoft Q&A and all that stuff as well. So, uh, you know, just keep it in the back That'll of your head. Interesting. I think it is something that potentially eases things out. I do wonder how the proctors are going to take it. I don't know, have you ever done one of the online Pearson exams, like back when they shut them all down for COVID and everything? Like sit at home and do it? Yes. Like not a renewal, but a brand new exam. But actually doing, no, I have never done it, partly because I have way too much noise in my house and I've heard horror stories about proctors just like shutting it down as soon as they hear noise. With all the family and kids I have home all day and the... Amount of tech in my office, like I literally have to go like sit on our bed in our bedroom or something to do it. And even then kids can 
charging it. So <laughs> I have never tried to do an at-home one. So that's a consideration is like background noise. You have to be in a quiet place. Your desk has to be cleaned off. Like they ask to, hey, can you like move your webcam down and show a picture of your desk? So like for me, I have like a mirrorless camera up here. I have to unmount it and like wave it around. <laughs> uh, or I just go grab like a USB webcam from the kids so you know I can pick it up and make it easier. Yep. But the other thing that they watch for is like they're watching your body movement and your eyes and things like that. And if you're looking to the side too much, if your eyes are flittering around, like they think you're getting into the mode where you're cheating, right? You could have somebody who wasn't there before and now they're in the room and they walked up behind you and they're over there. So I wonder how they're going to do things like that. Like many of us are on, you know, like multi-monitor setups. Like I've got a 32 inch monitor in front of me. So for me to look in like one corner to the other corner, like my head is going all the way back and forth, right? And I could be looking at something else, even though there's only a wall behind me and there's really nobody or nothing there. So I wonder how they're treat that piece of it because it sounds like they're still going to have the online moderators and and that makes sense to me for for the at home exams at least. So we'll we'll see how some of this stuff goes, but all in all I think it's good stuff. Yeah. It does only apply to the role-based exams and not the fundamentals. Yes. The role-based and the specialty exams. So things like Azure Administrator, Azure Developer, M365 Administrator, that stuff, those are all role-based exams. And then you've got like networking, AVS exams, AVD, things like that are all specialties. Yeah. To your point too, I think even if you're reading on Learn, right, your eyes tend to flitter. You tend to just get different facial expressions if you're reading Learn, much like you would be cheating. So that will be interesting. I think I was thinking through this as you were talking too. I think my strategy and what I would recommend people do, I think, is go take the exam just like you normally would. Like, don't look up Learn as you're going through it. Go through, answer the questions, the ones, and I do this already. The ones you're not sure of, I mark them to go back and review later. So I think I'd go do the whole exam, mark the ones that I want to review later, and then come back, and if there's time, hit the ones I want to review and look up, use Learn to see if I can help solidify those answers on the ones I wasn't sure of, the ones I wanted to review, versus trying to pull up Learn as I'm going through each one of them. We'll see. I think it'll work better at home for most folks in this model. Like The other thing that I, I comes to mind is... Most Pearson locations are pretty trashy. <laughs> like they're in random places sometimes, right? Like, hey, go to this weird office building in the back of this office park, and <laughs> the door is locked, and and it's like a skeevy place. And you're like, oh, I don't know about this. Or they're in like college labs or things like that, where there's a bunch of other tests and test taking going on. Like, I wonder about the infrastructure sometimes. Like, I think it was easier if it was just a shut down, componentized thing. But now, if you need to get out to the internet, you're dependent on internet access the whole time. Like, oh, how quick. Can I browse through this and, and what's that look like? The machines you take exams on at a Pearson exam center are all like crappy thin clients. They're not like beefy machines like you have at home. So they run the exam software slow enough that I bet they don't run the internet any faster, like when it comes to <laughs> rendering in a web browser or things like that. I might have to go try and sit one just to see how it goes. Go figure one out, Scott. We can compete on an exam. Indeed. Do you feel overwhelmed by trying to manage your Office 365 environment? Are you facing unexpected issues that disrupt your company's productivity? Intelligent is here to help. Much like you take your car to the mechanic that has specialized knowledge on how to best keep your car running, 
Intelligent helps you with your Microsoft Cloud environment because that's their expertise. Intelligent keeps up with the latest updates in the Microsoft Cloud to help keep your business running smoothly and ahead of the curve. Whether you are a small organization with just a few users up to an organization of several thousand employees, they want to partner with you to implement and administer your Microsoft Cloud technology. Visit them at intelligent.com slash podcast. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-I-N-K dot com slash podcast for more information or to schedule a 30-minute call to get started with them today. Remember, Intelligent focuses on the Microsoft Cloud so you can focus on your business. What else did we have? Did you have... We had a couple other kind of interesting announcements Oh, I've got YouTube videos playing in my tabs now as I click through them. Did you want to talk about one of your announcements this week around storage accounts? Yeah, we can talk about one of mine. So something that I've been working on with some of my partners over in Azure Networking is improving the experience for our CDN customers. I don't know if you've paid attention to the CDN space at Microsoft and kind of what's been going on there, but there's a couple different resource providers for CDNs. Like there's Microsoft.cdn, and then within Microsoft CDN, there's Classic CDN, there's Akamai, there's Verizon. And at one point, there was an offering called Front Door Classic. Uh, well, it was called Front Door at the time, Azure Front Door. And then that became Azure Front Door Classic. And now there's Azure Front Door Standard and Premium. And we never really kept up with all that stuff on the storage side. Like many of our customers have ended up in a space where, you know, they're they're potentially relegated if they want to configure things through the Azure portal to leveraging like the classic CDN, Akamai CDN, which is going to be deprecated and, and has been announced as going to be retired in the next couple of years. So I wanted, like we set out on this kind of journey to see if we could improve the process for customers there. And by improve it, not just, hey, let's make sure we're modernizing and giving customers access to like the right tool for the right job, but also simplify the process. Like it was kind of an interesting thing for me as product manager to sit down and look at an existing experience that like I had nothing to do with originally in, in storage and go like oh yeah this is kind of like not the greatest experience for customers it's kind of complicated it takes in excess of 20 clicks to create a CDN endpoint <laughs> which is kind of crazy because really all you're doing is using the portal as like an arm template expression generator like we've talked about in the past like how do you simplify that how do you make it quicker so we got it down to just a handful of clicks and you can deploy and manage your endpoints for a storage account so for blob as origin or for a static website as origin or both if you want to you can basically go into the portal on a storage account and there's a blade in there that's now called front door and CDN and you just pump in a name for your front door profile and you choose a couple options like do you want a web application firewall and, and some other security constructs like do you want to enable edge caching and things like that and you just click the button and it deploys and it just kind of goes which is super slick. Like It's all good now. Now we have a unified management experience where you can come in. So if you're a customer who's managing uh, Blob as Origin under Azure Front Door 
standard or premium, or you're using any of the classic CDN constructs like Microsoft CDN Classic, Akamai for ICE, and things like that, you have a one-stop management experience from within the storage blades. And if you want to, like we don't do CDN as a hobo service or a hosted on behalf of thing. Like you have a full access to front door and the associated CDM profile. So if you want to do other things in front door, like okay, great, I created my CDN endpoint and I spun things up, but now I need to go customize that. I want to bind a custom domain. I want to do custom SSL, all that kind of stuff. I want to go look deeper at the features in the web application firewall and customize the the rule sets, the core rule sets associated with that, you have full access to that because the front door resource that's provisioned is something that lives in your subscriptions, you manage, you maintain. Like We give you kind of the best experience for what you need as a storage customer in the storage side. But if you need more than that, you just hop over to the, you hop over to the other side and go to your front door resource and you can manage everything through there as well. So I think it's really like a best of both worlds kinds of things. And now that there's more native integration from our end, from the storage side with front door, I tend to look at that as a little bit of like forward looking thing as well. Like what other kind of integrations can we build in to make things better for storage customers? Like, you know, I mentioned like custom domains, you can do custom domains in storage today, but you can't do custom SSL on a storage account. But if you front your storage account with Frontdoor, Frontdoor does both custom domains and custom SSL. So like, is there a better native integrated experience that we could have there to guide customers in? Like, hey, if you need a custom domain without SSL, go this way. If you need a custom domain and SSL, go over here to this other service because it's the best thing. And by the way, it's natively integrated. Got it. So this isn't necessarily adding any new SKUs or any new pricing or any of this. This is just taking those existing Azure Frontdoor standard and premium Skews in creating some tighter integration between that and your blob storage. And our old CDN experience didn't even have front door in it. So if you were just coming over to storage, you wouldn't have known that front door even existed or was an option for you unless you actually went out and did it from the front door side and came over. So now you kind of have this holistic view where you can start in front door and come to storage, or you can start in storage and get to front door and have all that functionality between both stacks. Got it. I am going to add this to my list and actually play with it because I'm actually working on redoing my website right now as a static site hosted in Azure Blob Storage. So I might have to go throw Azure Front Door in front of it and then maybe go ask you for some Azure credits. <laughs> front Door is interesting. It's it's I had kind of lost sight of it being in storage. Uh-huh. It was good to get back up to speed on it. Like the last time I looked at Front Door, you know, they had maybe like 150 pops and they didn't have as much of the rich WAF functionality and some of the other things like it's actually kind of come a long way. They've got like 192 plus pops today. They've got way better controls around caching and cache purge. Having a single front door endpoint with like multiple blob storage origins is super easy now. We also took the time to make sure that it works with kind of all storage account types. So, you know, we have some like new endpoint types with these Azure DNS zone accounts in, in preview today. And even though that stuff's in preview, like, hey, we 
baked it into this experience and it's ready to go. So I'm very happy with the way it turned out. And as you called out in the chat, like, hey, look at the author of that blog post. I've been in Azure Storage for like three years and I'm kind of happy. Like this is the first feature that like I got to not only support and like help engineer and build out, but I own it and launch it. And it's the area of storage that I own. So that's kind of fun too. Congratulations on that achievement. It's kind of fun seeing your name at the top of all that. But can you get Azure block front door pricing cheaper? Like, if I go do this, I'm going to have to make sure I stay on the standard plan because there's no way I'm paying for the premium one. <laughs> Stick around and watch the space and we'll see what I can do. You'll see what you can do. All right, there's your next, I sent you after your next project. Because, I mean, the standard one isn't bad, right? $35 a month for something like this. But yeah, that premium one at $330 a month, that starts to get a little steep for my lowly little website. Hopefully I don't need anything in there. I think most folks... Like if you're just starting out, you don't need premium to be brutally honest. Like the things that it adds in, you know, is there really value add for there? Like, do you need a web application firewall on day one? Do you need additional DDoS protection between like what Azure beyond what like Azure standard DDoS like? Probably not, right? right. Like especially if you're talking about like a blog or even like a simple like company website, like like your website intelligent.com, like likely doesn't need a bunch of those features. Like those features are there for the folks that need them. And standard does do a whole lot. Yeah, bot protection, like I wouldn't need private link, I wouldn't need threat intelligence, security analytics. You know, especially if you're hosting a static website, right? Like there's not a whole lot that it's public already, so you really don't have a lot of threat detection you need or security stuff. It's just a bunch of HTML files. Maybe you care about somebody getting in there and somehow changing your files. But I would agree. Like you look through the premium features and hosting a static website, blob storage, you can probably get away with most of them with just that standard skew of front door. And even like web static websites in storage are super basic things where I would say like for most folks like you know you should start probably unless you know you really need it like you should start with front door standard. I go the other way with things like static websites like you probably think you want to start simple but from what I do with static websites and what I see many customers doing, frankly, storage isn't always the right tool for them. I, I get I'm supposed to sell more storage, but I, <laughs> I would almost I would caution you and potentially guide you towards other services like Azure Static Web Apps, where it has rich native integrations with GitHub Actions and all those kinds of things out of the box. Right? I think about like most static websites are actually statically generated based on other content, like things like Hugo and Ghost and all that. So you yeah. have to run through like a build process. If you want to do that with a static web app just on storage, there's a ton of bootstrapping that you need to go do on your own. And if you just started out with, back to that conversation about the right tool for the right job, if you just started out with Azure Static Web Apps, you would potentially be in a better place because it has all those integrations natively from day one and you don't have to do all that heavy lifting. We should go back and talk about those because those have changed quite a bit. Too. I know like blob storage used to be the way. Blob storage used to be the way. That's another area in storage that I look after. But now it's those Azure static web apps have gotten. I don't know that it's the way for everybody these days. Anymore. I'm very mindful of like in Azure, we have multiple services that do the same kinds of things. And just from what I see customers doing, and from what I know that you probably do, like you're probably like a Hugo or a ghost person kind of thing, versus a I'm gonna open VS Code and just actually manually write some HTML. HTML here. I am actually using 
Now I'm completely blanking on the name of it. I'm not using either of those. I am using... Oh, my edge just crashed on me. <laughs> we'll just call it a day. Yes, it's to do too much. Why am I blanking on the name of it right now? But yes, I looked at a bunch of them. I'm not using Hugo or Ghost. It's a newer one that came on the scene that I actually like better because it's not... It, it just made sense to me. That's the thing with the static website generators, right? You just pick one that makes the most sense. But I think the keyword there is generator. There's static yes. web apps, and then there's statically generated websites. I absolutely use a generator. I think that's the distinction. So once you start to get generator in the name, like you might want to be looking at something else. Yeah, so you go Pelican. Uh, it's in here. We'll come back with that one. I'll throw it in the chat. We'll throw it in the show notes. But I actually do have a meeting at 4 o'clock. So I should probably call it a day with that. All right. Well, as always, thank you. And we'll chat again next week. All right. Thanks, Scott. We'll talk to you next week. Yep. Thanks, Ben. If you enjoyed the podcast, go leave us a five-star rating in iTunes. It helps to get the word out so more IT pros can learn about Office 365 and Azure. If you have any questions you want us to address on the show or feedback about the show, feel free to reach out via our website, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.